0: Good morning. This morning, we will be continuing a series of studies uh, that I started uh, about a month or so ago on the Philippian letter uh, entitled, Let This Mind Be In You. If you recall uh, the introduction to this series, we talked about how right now a war is being waged. A battle is being fought, and the stakes have never been higher. And it's not on some foreign battlefield. This, this war is not fought with tanks or bombs or, or bullets. Paul says that this isn't a physical war fought with physical or carnal weapons. Rather, this is a war that is fought in the heart and in the mind. And we talked about that last time as we introduced this series. Every day, at every moment, there is a spiritual battle raging for your heart in your mind. And Satan, a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, will use and exploit every avenue to try and win the battle for your mind. He will attempt, as Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians, to build strongholds in your mind that will come between you and your relationship with with God. But God calls us to have a different mindset, a godly mindset. And one of the best examples that we find in in scripture that deals with the mindset that we're to have as Christian is Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Paul would say, "Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus" in the second chapter in the 5th verse that we'll talk about next time. Over and over again, though, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul reminds them how to think, how their mindset should be, because he knew how vital that is in our war against sin and Satan. So, over the course of the next four lessons that I give on Sunday morning, we will continue to go through this series entitled Let This Mind Be In You. And this morning, we will be focusing on the first chapter of the Philippian letter with a sermon entitled, The Gospel-Centered Mind. So if you would, turn to Philippians, the first chapter. We're going to take our text from Philippians 1 this morning. We will read the first chapter. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, That your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That you may approve things that are excellent and you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand brethren that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, Whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I want not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is far more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. If I were to ask you, what is that? What would you say? And some of you are sitting there probably squinting your eyes and, and, and thinking, Jeff, that looks like a mess. What, that just looks like a big smudge of ink. And you know what? You're exactly right. It is a big smudge of ink. But that isn't just any smudge of ink. This is an example of what a psychologist would call a Rorschach test. In 1921, a German psychologist named Hermann Rorschach developed a series of tests using ink blots like this as a method of psychoanalysis. The idea was to show a subject a series of pictures like this, and based on their answers, you would be able to draw conclusions about that person's mindset and their personality and things like that. The point wasn't that these ink blots actually represented something specific. The point was that someone's personality, their experiences, their their mindset would determine how they perceived this and how, how how it would influence how they handled the test and how they would answer these questions. The mind of the person determined the outcome of the test. Isn't life like that a lot of times? We can go through life and each of us can be presented with the same thing and we can have totally different reactions. This Christmas, you could take a, a small little gift and give it to a spoiled little kid who has always gotten whatever he wanted and he might throw that gift aside and say, oh, give, give me the next gift, I don't like that one. And you can take that same little gift and you give it to a child that doesn't have much, and they, they might think that that's the best present that they've ever seen. The coolest thing in the world. Their perceptions, their mindset, determines how they would react to life. And we're the same way. We go through this life and experience all the ups and downs, all the successes and failures, all the, all the laughs and tears, all the happy times, all the heartbreaking moments. We all go through those things, and it's our mindset that will determine how we approach and how we handle this life and those experiences and and ultimately how or, or, or if we serve God. And God knew that. The Apostle Paul knew that. So in the letter to the Philippian church, he addresses this mindset that we should have. And in the chapter that we read this morning, the text that we took this morning from Philippians 1, Paul laid out four characteristics of the godly mindset that we are called to have. And this morning, we're going to notice four things that we must do to have a gospel-centered mindset. To set the stage for those four things, before we jump into those four things, I want to take a step back and think about who wrote the Philippian letter and a little bit about his background. As we talked about last time, the author, and we've mentioned, the author of this letter was the Apostle Paul, written probably somewhere around AD 60 to AD 62. And if I were to ask you what comes to mind about Paul, what would you say? What type of person was Paul? And you might rightly say, well, he was an apostle. He was a central figure in the first century church, he, he wrote most or much of the New Testament. He was a powerful preacher. He was a teacher. He was an evangelist. He was a missionary. And all of those things are true. He was a powerful figure who was a tremendous asset in the early church. And we build him up as a larger-than-life figure, like, a, like an early church superhero And then we might think, well, sure, Paul, it's easy for you to sit there and write this letter and tell me how to have a godly mindset that we need to think a certain way or or, or do this or do that. That's easy for you to say, Paul, you are the great apostle Paul. But it isn't easy for someone like me, just a regular person, someone like me to have a mindset like that. With the things that I have to deal with, with the struggles that, that, that I have, I'm not you, Paul, so it's hard for me to have a mindset like that. But notice a few things about Paul's background and experience. First, Paul endured tremendous physical hardship. In 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 25, Paul says, Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipper. And night and a day I have been in the deep. in journeyings often in perils of water, in perils of of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst and fastings off, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that which cometh up upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. Paul said that he's been beaten, he's been stoned, he was lost at sea, he was shipwrecked. He endured so many trials and struggles, and yet he maintains a godly mindset and urged the Philippian Christians to do the same. And now, you might be thinking, well, sure, Jeff, those things aren't the hard part. It isn't the physical things in this life that make it hard. I can deal with those sorts of things. I can deal with the struggles of life like that. I can deal with that. That's easy. It's this spiritual struggle that's hard. It's the temptation that I deal with or the sin in my past. How am I supposed to maintain a godly mindset when I have those things in my past or in my mind? Did did Paul have to deal with something like that? Of course he did. Paul dealt with temptation and sin to a a degree that's that's hard for us to battle. Prior to his conversion uh, to Christianity, Paul was a zealous persecutor of the church. He would later call himself the the chief of sinners. We see in his writings to the Roman church the the internal struggle that he dealt with. Even as Paul was helping lead and establish the early church, he endures trials and struggles and temptations and overcoming sin and guilt and all those things that we deal with. Doesn't that sound so familiar to our own lives? I believe that, that we sometimes have this idea when we look at others and maybe when we are here at church and we look around and we see everybody here we see sure they're Christians they're, they're they're doing what God says, but their life, their life is easy. Look at their Instagram page. Look at Facebook. They, their life is so easy. They, they have no problems in their lives. They don't have to deal with what I have on my plate. You know, we, We're dealing with this financial struggle or this disease or this temptation or sin. It's just so hard, the things that I have to deal with. No one else has to deal with this, these things that I have in my life. I want to share a little secret with you. Think about someone that you view as a godly, righteous person. That person that is a role model in their faith. That, that person that's a rock and a pillar. Someone that, that is active in, in the church and works hard to do, to do the things uh, that, that God wants them to do. Someone that's a role model for you that you've always wanted to follow. And I want you to understand that person has dealt with tremendous trials and troubles and temptations, and yes, at times, sin in their life. Every elder or deacon here has struggled at times with the trials of life and temptation and sin. Scott Saul once said, Even the greatest heroes of faith were flawed and broken, wrecked, weary, restless, and sometimes tortured sinners even when they were at their very best. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7, says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Paul says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. God has called us, us imperfect, frail, fragile people, to carry out his perfect will. And Paul, who is a perfect example of this, is the one who is calling the Philippian church to have a godly mindset. Not someone who was a mythological, perfect person who never dealt with problems. Rather, a flawed sinner who endured so much. That is who wrote this letter that we're studying. So when he calls us to transform our minds and have a godly mindset, we should appreciate who this is coming from. So with that in mind, let's notice for the rest of our time here this morning... Four things that Paul mentions that we should do and have to have a gospel-centered mindset. And this leads into the first of those that I want for us to notice, and that is that we should view trials as opportunities to do God's will. Notice what Paul again said in verse 12 of our text. Paul says that the reasons that the things that he, that he has been called to endure— The reason that they happened was for the furtherance of the gospel. His mindset is that the struggles and trials that he's going through are an opportunity for God's will to be carried out. He says that even though he had been thrown in prison, that's given him an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to an entirely new audience. The example that Paul has given to the other brethren, like it talked about there in verse 15, has given them boldness and confidence to proclaim God's word. He says that even the, that people that, that, he, that he doesn't have the best relationship with, those people that might view Paul as a rival or, or people that might not have the best intentions, he says that those people are proclaiming the gospel. And even if they aren't doing it for the right reasons, the gospel is still being proclaimed. Paul describes this gospel-centered mindset that he has. That even in the midst of trials and troubles... We can view those situations as opportunities to carry out God's will. So often when we are tried and tested and tempted, we fall into the attitude of, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening in my life? Why do I have to deal with this? Instead, we should view these as opportunities to carry out God's will. When we view temptations and trials as opportunities to carry out the will of God, the people around us can gain strength through the example that we give. For you parents, your kids are watching. Give them a good example to follow when you deal with the trials of life. They will see how you deal with those things. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, we see those things. We gain wisdom and experience when we endure these things that will allow us to minister to others in ways that we never could before. And we're changed and shaped and transformed into the servant that God wants us to be. But it starts with our attitude and our mindset during those times. We are never promised a life free of trouble and struggle and pain. But we are promised that if we have the proper mindset and follow God's will, those things can be used to carry out God's will in our lives and in the lives of others. Isaiah chapter 43 says, But now thus saith the Lord that created me, O Jacob, and and that formed me, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Notice what we just read. He says, when you pass through the waters, not if you pass through them. When you walk through the fire, not if you walk through the fire. God promises to be with us in our sorrows and in our afflictions. He doesn't promise that he'll spare us from the waters of sorrow, the fires of adversity, but he does promise us that he will be with us as we walk through them. Paul's mindset was that these times would be used for the furtherance of the gospel, and may we approach struggles and trials in the same way. The next aspect of this gospel-centered mindset that Paul displays here is a mindset of hope. Again, look back at the text this morning in verse 19. Paul says, I know that these things will turn out for my salvation. Through your prayers and through God's providential care, I know that God's will will be carried out. In verse 20, he says that according to my earnest expectation and hope that Christ will be magnified, Christ will be glorified. These couple of verses are a... Wonderful example, a very succinct description of what hope really is. If I were to ask you what hope is, how would you define that word, hope? That's one of those words that we hear read and over and over again, but do we have a good grasp of what hope actually means from a biblical perspective? So when we define hope, what do we say? Most people define hope or equate it as wishing something would happen. This evening, the Cowboys will play the Philadelphia Eagles. First place in the NFC East is on the line, right? I hope, I hope that they win tonight. And they'll get home field advantage and that they'll win the Super Bowl. I sure do hope that that happens. Please, finally, let that happen. It is, some, is it something that's going to happen? I don't know. Probably not if the tw- past 26 years have been uh, any indication. I sure hope it does, but it may not, especially when it comes to the cowboys. And then we think about hope from a biblical perspective, and we take a similar mindset. We read a verse like for Ephesians 1 and verse 18 that says, The eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of this calling and with the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints we see that we're hoping we equate it to a wish i wish i wish god would do this for me i sure hope god keeps his promises i hope god forgive me of my sins and when our hope is nothing more than wishful thinking it leaves room in our minds and in our hearts for doubt and fear and anxiety to creep in but hope is more than wishful thinking. Hope is a confident expectation of things to come. It's more than just wishing something would happen. It's having full confidence and faith that what we have been promised will come to pass, that these great and precious promises that we have been given will come true. Notice again the words that Paul used. He said, I know he said, my earnest expectation. Paul didn't just wish that God's will would be carried out, that God would be glorified. He didn't just wish that God would keep his word. He had a confident expectation. He knew. He had hope. And that hope carried him through some extremely difficult and ultimate, difficult times and ultimately his death. A mind that has hope is a mind that is able to bear and endure tremendous pain and tremendous suffering. And a mind without hope is a mind that's ready to give up. Hope is extremely important, extremely powerful. Paul had hope, and we would do well to have a similar, a confident expectation in God and his promises. And if we will, we will be able to have a gospel-centered mindset. And that leads us to the next aspect of Paul's gospel-centered mindset, in that he knew what awaited him. He knew heaven was coming. Look back at verses 21 through 23. Paul says that if he were to die, if his present struggle and trials resulted in his death... He knows that he will be home in heaven with Christ. That what is to come is far better. Paul was able to persevere for the cause of Christ and endure the trials of this life because he knew the, what awaited him on the other side of death. Second Corinthians, the fourth chapter, starting in verse fifteen, says, "For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving, redound to the glory of God." For which cause we faint not, but but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal tells the Corinthian church that the light affliction, quote-unquote, remember his light affliction is being beaten and shipwrecked and and persecuted and, and, and people trying to murder him. That's the light affliction that he's talking about. He says this light affliction that we're asked to endure is only temporary. It is but for a moment and will result in a far better eternal weight of glory. And if we know something's temporary, it's much easier for us to deal with. Paul had, and and we should have, the hope and the assurance that this world is not my home. That this life and this world is not where I belong. It's not my ultimate destiny. And I hope that we view heaven that way. That heaven and not this world is our home. I think that we often have a wrong idea or wrong view of what heaven is for and and what it is. Heaven is not just our big all-inclusive resort in the sky. God didn't just create a place that that we're going to be at and we're going to think is real cool and comfortable and like an awesome vacation or family reunion that will last for all eternity. It's more than that something much more valuable, something much more comforting, something much more precious. It's home. Have you ever been gone for a long time? In the place that you are, you know, it might be really, really cool. I think about when I was gone to college. I was somewhere that I enjoyed, somewhere that... That, that I liked, somewhere that I learned a lot, somewhere that, that I, was, I was comfortable at, but it wasn't home. I always remember when, I, when I'd come home, I'd, be, I'd leave College Station and come home, and, and I would arrive in Kaufman County, and things would just feel like home. We were created not just for this temporary life here on earth, but for an eternal life at home with our Father in heaven. Paul knew this, and because of it, he had the hope to carry him through the struggles of this life. Christ endured the pain and the shame and the horror of the cross, knowing that at the end of his life here, waited eternal glory and a home in heaven. Despite his circumstances, despite his troubles, despite the trials he endured, He had the confident expectation that he would return to his home and his Father in heaven. And we too have that same hope. So when we see how messed up this world can be sometimes, anchor yourself to the hope, the confident expectation that this world is not our home. When you receive bad news, when your friends or your family hurts you or abandon you or you receive a medical diagnosis that burns your heart, stand firm and know that whatever comes your way is only temporary. This world is not your home. There's something better waiting for you. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter and the ninth verse says, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Paul knew that, that there was something better. May we carry that thought as as part of our gospel-centered mindsets. And yet, while Paul knew that there was something better for him in heaven, there was one final aspect of this gospel-centered mindset that I want for us to notice. Look back at verses 24 and 25 of our text this morning. Paul says, yes, I know that heaven is my home, and I long to be with God. But while I am here, I have a job to do. I am still needed. I need to serve my fellow man. he says that he still has a responsibility that the brethren in Philippi still needed. And he says that he will abide and continue with you all. Paul loved the church. He loved the people around him, and he knew that they they still needed him. Paul had a job to do now. He yearned to see Christ. He yearned to be home in heaven, to be in the presence of God. But while he was still on this side of death, he had a job to do. And you have a job to do also. And I say that to everyone here this morning. No matter who you are, no matter your station in life, you have a responsibility. You have a job to do. And I exhort you, I urge you to do your job. For you young people here this morning, you have a job to do. You have a responsibility to honor and obey your parents in the Lord. You are such an encouragement to this congregation when you're here and you're participating and you're active and you're involved in the worship service and in the, in the things of the, the church. You are an encouragement to those around you. You are an example to your friends and your family. You're an example of, of what it means to be a young Christian person. You have a responsibility to grow. You must grow and develop spiritually so that one day you'll be able to fill your role as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and eventual leaders in this church. You have a job to do. Do it. For you husbands and you wives here this morning, you have a job to do. You have a responsibility to love and nurture and provide for your spouse. To be one flesh, to lead and guide your family in a godly way. You must raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You must decide that your house is going to follow God's will no matter what. You have a job to do. Do it. For you not so young people, for you grandparents and older people here this morning, you have a job to do. You have so much wisdom and experience to share with your family and with this congregation. You're not as young as you once were, but still look for opportunities to guide and lead and love. Physically, you may not be able to do what you once did, but you have wisdom and perspective that is so valuable The example that you provide by walking through the later years of your life in a godly way is so valuable. It's so needed by this congregation. Some of the most cherished words of encouragement and guidance that I've received, some of the most valuable ministry that I've been witness to has been by our older people. You have a job to do. Do it. For you leaders here this morning, for the elders and the deacons in this congregation, we have a job to do. We have been given the awesome privilege and responsibility to lead and serve God's people. We must teach and guide and love and serve. We must provide a godly example to follow. We have a job to do. And for everyone here this morning, to La Prada Drive Church of Christ, you have a job to do. We have been given the greatest mission that man has ever received. We have been commissioned to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been commissioned to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we all, in our different ways, can contribute to that mission. By attending and participating in the worship service, giving and providing financially, by loving and serving each other, we have a job to do. And I again exhort this congregation, everyone here this morning, do your job. Paul knew while he was still here, he had a responsibility and he had a role to fill. And that motivated him to continue to serve God all the days of his life, regardless of what struggles he endured. May we all relish our role in our responsibility, whatever that may be, and fulfill our responsibility and do our jobs in the kingdom of God. Paul, in the beginning of his letter to the Philippian church, begins to outline how we can have a godly mindset, which we've been studying here this morning. He describes what we've been calling this morning the gospel-centered mind. Perhaps you've been struggling to have a godly mindset. Perhaps you've struggled with the cares of life. Perhaps hope has faded. Perhaps you've lost sight of your responsibilities in the kingdom. Perhaps you don't feel like you are living up to the calling that you've been given as a, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Like I mentioned, we all struggle and go through times like that. And we all need the strength and the prayers of the encouragement of all those around us in this congregation. Perhaps you'd like those prayers this morning. We'd be happy to do that with you and for you. Perhaps you've never entered into the kingdom of God and never allowed your faith to move you to repent of your sins. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and obey him in baptism. Perhaps you'd like to do that today. We'd be happy to do that with you also this morning. If there's anything we can do for you, please come as we stand and as we sing.